Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 117, and today's guest is Danielle Cohen Showit, co founder and CEO of Gloss Genius. While some children may aspire to become a doctor, astronaut, firefighter, etc., etc., Danielle's plan, even from an early age, was very different. Her plan was to start and build a company. Well, Danielle's aspirations became a reality with Gloss Genius, the all-in-one solution for top beauty professionals. Their platform is helping very small business owners with the complexities of running a business. It simplifies and automates things like scheduling, client management, payments, and more, so the business owner can focus on servicing their customers. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Danielle's background story, including some of her early entrepreneurial endeavors as a child, all about Gloss Genius and how they're helping very small business owners operate and run their business, how narrowing the potential customer lens to a specific segment helped propel their business forward, the Techstars experience and how they benefited from going through this top accelerator, Danielle's thoughts on why all founders should learn how to code, lessons learned around hiring and onboarding, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Danielle. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you, Danielle, because um, you know, you've got a very interesting background in terms of your career and how you've gotten to where you are today building a, a, a startup. So let's, uh, let's take a walk through that journey. So bring us back to uh, you know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, uh, so I uh, grew up in Florida and actually had no plans for New York City. Um, let's see, me as a child, it's funny because the only plan I had from a really young age was to build a company. So if you met my parents and asked, yeah, yeah. If you met my parents and asked this, they'd tell you that when I was probably six or seven, they'd ask me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And most children say something really cool, like a astronaut or firefighter or doctor. And, uh, I would tell them I want to build a company. And, um, you know, they tell me, Hey, building something is hard and you could be a manager somewhere. And you know, that that takes a lot of time too. And I think I had watched way too many movies about this because I would respond to them and say, well, that's fine. I'll start in the mail room and work my way up. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know if so you ever watched the movie. But you're you're reminding me of a classic uh, Michael J. Fox movie, uh, "Secret of My Success," which that's oh, yeah. exactly what he did. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I think that was probably definitely one of the movies I had watched or something. And um, I think the other thing is probably worth sharing, and it's somewhat ironic given my industry now, um, was that when I was a child, I was always playing with my mom's makeup. So. Literally, the minute my mom would leave the house, uh, my twin sister and I would run into her bathroom, lock the door, uh, we'd start playing with her makeup, and uh, I think me as a child, I just really liked creating things, and I liked playing with things. Um, I wasn't afraid to make a mess. I, you know, I think I was always the one my parents would assume was up to something and, and kind of had to keep me on the, a tighter leash. <laughs> so that was me, yeah. What was your first... Um, you know, business. Yeah, I had, um, 
two businesses when I was quite young. Um, one was actually somewhat successful, uh, given the context of my age, and the other was just a, a complete failure. Um, and the first one was uh, I really enjoyed painting when I was young. So I painted my grandma some greeting cards. Um, and, you know, I got these, uh, these stock blank greeting cards from Michael's Crafts. And I, you know, sent her a packet of 10 of them. And she, she was so old fashioned. She'd write thank you notes all the time and all these handwritten notes. And she loved them. And she used them all. And she called me and she said, I love those. Can I buy some from you? next time and you can send me more. And I said, sure. And the minute she asked me if she could buy some from me, I said, oh, I'm going to start selling these. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, had a little side business. I actually, you know, went to craft shows and fairs. Um, you know, my parents made me invest money that I earned into like buying a booth and they were really supportive of that. But I think that was like, actually buying a booth was the first first real experience I got investing in, in a business environment. And then the second thing, which was completely dumb, and it probably speaks to the um, notion that uh, an idea is uh, 1% and execution is 99%. My twin sister and I um, had, you know, we had a big backyard growing up and we said that we were going to build a pond and then charge neighborhood kids to come and swim. And uh, it was like, we both looked at each other. Yeah, we both looked at each other and we're like, okay, do you want to start shoveling? And she was like, do you want to start shoveling? And then, yeah, that was just a complete failure. So That is hysterical. So what is your twin sister doing? Is she, uh, is she entrepreneurial as well? Yeah, she is. Um, she uh, is executive uh, vice president of network growth and adoption at Symphony. So Symphony is a company that basically makes a secure, seamless collaboration platform for Fortune 500 companies with stricter regulatory and compliance standards. They're very focused on uh, financial institutions like Goldman or Citi or JPM. And uh, she joined them at a very early stage and uh, has you know, been a big part of scaling that company. Very cool. So why did you decide to study economics at Princeton, uh, move away from the sun sunshine state? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had started off as an engineering major at Princeton, which I think was how I got a technical edge. And I, I did all the hard distribution requirements. And there was one lecture that I decided to take, and that was uh, with Alan Blinder, who was the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And Alan Blinder was a very well-known professor in the economics department at Princeton. And I think that lecture changed everything. Um, and I think many of the best professors were teaching in that department as I started to look at them, syllabus and the register of courses. And I thought this is what I came here for. And my philosophy at that time, I remember, you know, like eager freshman, I thought I can always read and learn the rest, but I'll never be able to sit in here from Alan again. So I just decided to change to uh, economics and pursue that path right after that lecture. Got it. Okay. And then from there, you know, so you, you actually graduated and worked on Wall Street, right? Yep. Yep. So what were you doing there? I was at Goldman Sachs and Goldman was awesome. I think it was really unique to be around so many people that were really driven and smart. And, uh, you know, when I was at Goldman, I, I learned a lot, but it, I was also getting to a point there where I would look around and ask myself if I wanted to be like the senior people. 
there and around me and the resounding answer was no. So, you know, it was at Goldman literally the next day I went in and chatted with my managers and they were really supportive and great. And, and then I was on to next steps after that. So as a child, you always knew you wanted to start a company. So you kind of took this experience of, you know, working on Wall Street for a couple of years, but right away started a company, right? Yeah. I mean, I was, I had some corporate experience at Goldman. I was there for two years. And um, after I left Goldman, I actually was uh, working on some independent software consulting projects because I knew how to code and I knew that I loved building things. And that was just a really great way for me to get my you know, hands and feet wet again with building things, uh, you know, until I really could think about something I was incredibly passionate about to do. So how did you get to that point of, you know, this is what I want to focus on. This is my passion and, you know, starting Gloss Genius. That's a fun story. So, you know, since the time I was very young, I, you know, given the uh, experimentation in my mom's bathroom with her makeup, I would, uh, I love beauty and I absolutely love the makeup side of things. And I knew I had really wanted to build something from a really young age. And to me, I think what was really exciting about building something was that it was a medium of impact. And when I thought about what I wanted to build, you know, the, the idea of changing someone's business or their life with something that like I've literally built, you know, as a, as a program with my bare hands was just really exciting. And I knew that I, I wanted to pursue something that would affect people every single day. Um, and I, you know, given what was happening in the industry that I was very interested in the beauty industry, it was really rare to have that kind of opportunity. And I just knew it was the right decision for me to go down that path and, and start a company there. So how did you actually come up with the name? I'm always curious as to how you know, people come up with the name and then obviously you uh, were able to get the .com. Oh my gosh, that is <laughs> <It's a process laughs> one of the itself. best. That's one of, we have so many good stories uh, when we were starting out, but we had, um, I have a few, I own a few domain names and one of them was a totally unrelated, super short, six-letter domain name that my co-founder and I were like, all right, you know what, whatever, we'll just host it on this domain name and uh, we'll figure out, we'll figure out the name later once we actually have made progress on, on the product and launching it and whatnot. And so we had uh, used this domain name that it's, it's so unrelated that it's funny to even think about it. And we went to Techstars and people were just like, I don't get your domain name. <laughs> and so we're in that accelerator and we were just like, guys, we're focused on building the product, not on the name. We'll think about the name. And Keith, we did everything. We thought about, you know, we had worksheets thinking about the name. We would put post-it notes on a wall. Uh, I remember we had a session with a few friends where we were whiteboarding and just coming up with rapid fire names in, in the area and literally nothing, nothing was sticking. And so my co-founder and I at that point were just like, all right, well, whatever, we're going to focus on our product and something will come. So, you know, it was like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. We were both in the office and we were sitting there and I was just, I was just saying things out loud. And we were, it just, just randomly, I said, the first name I said was Glam Genius. And then I blurted out Gloss Genius. Mm -hmm. And then I blurted out Gloss Genius again. 
and then Kroom paused. And then we went to, I think we went to GoDaddy to check yeah. first. We went to GoDaddy and like I furiously typed in glossgenius.com thinking that like if there was anyone else that was going to, you know, buy it at that very moment, I was like, I wanted to buy it for, you know, I had that attitude. And uh, I was a little scared to press enter because I was afraid that it would come up with like a $3,000 price tag or like a take-in or something. And I said, whatever, I pressed enter and it was a $12.99 domain name. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, a, and it was, it was not taken. It was, it was crazy. So then I, you know, immediately went to Instagram, to Twitter, um, to Facebook, scooped up all those handles. Those were completely available. And then the next morning, it was funny because, you know, everyone, everyone in our accelerator knew that we were trying to change the name. And uh, the next morning I came in and I was just like announcing the name change. And, <laughs> you know, people there were like, wait, that's actually pretty good. How did you come up with that? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was such a fun story too. So uh, yeah, I just couldn't believe how all of that worked out. Uh, now you mentioned your co-founder a couple of times. So, so how'd you meet him? So we were good friends before we started the company. I, I think uh, Trim, so that's uh, his name. He's been one of the best things about the company. Um, he's amazing and incredible, but I knew that when we were friends. At the time, uh, he was doing innovation consulting with Accenture. I was at Goldman, and uh, that was when we met. And, you know, you know those people you meet and you talk to and you just know that you're going to be good friends for some reason. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of the first time I met him. It was years before we started Gigi. And um, yeah, I just knew we were going to be good friends before uh, Gloss Genius. We worked on random fun projects together because he knew how to code. I knew how to code too. And uh, we had a lot of fun working on things together and it just seemed like a very natural thing that we, we worked on gloss genius ultimately together. So, so, so uh, we're going to talk about gloss genius, like as far as the details and what you are now, was it always that intention kind of coming out of the gates between you and Karim or was it kind of an iteration to get there? Oh, there's been so many iterations. Yeah. So many. Um, when we initially started, we were, focusing on kind of a wider um, area of uh, independent professionals and entrepreneurs in the creative space. And given my passion for the beauty industry, I, I definitely was like kind of trying to gear it towards there. And then I think just given what we knew about the space and the opportunity and whatnot, um, and also our uh, beta users at the time, you know, how much traction we were getting in that space, that's when we had really started to focus they're specifically on beauty and just kind of cut other professions out. Got it. And so what is Gloss Genius today? Like, what do you guys do? So uh, high level, I think we're changing the way our industry works. Um, you know, we've taken complicated, unintuitive software and made it accessible for very small businesses and small businesses in the beauty industry to succeed. And uh, I think, if you kind of take a step back and think about all of the uh, entrepreneurship happening in our industry, our product is making it possible for you know, entrepreneurs that are busy visiting clients and busy on their creations. And we're you know, doing the grunt work and taking out 
a lot of the back office business management requirements that they need to spend an excessive amount of time on. Yeah, and there's so much to running a small business um, that you take for granted, but these people have to do. And it just seems like your platform has brought it all together in a very simple, elegant way. And all those headaches, I mean, things like, um, you know, those previous versions of VentureFizz that use like PayPal for credit card processing, which was just a nightmare. Uh, just, you know, things like yeah. that where you had to get integration and these APIs yeah. that you're just like, yeah, I don't know, you know, you got to get a developer involved, right? So, um, yeah. you know, so what you guys have done around the full portfolio of what you do everywhere from scheduling and CRM with your customers, building your brand, payments, analytics, it's just, uh, it's really comprehensive for a, you know, like you said, a very small business owner. Yeah. Yeah. And they have enough to worry about. And that's kind of our philosophy that, uh, they're incredible, incredible creators and artists. And, uh, you know, a lot of the business things they really shouldn't have to worry about. Now, where's your business at now in terms of, uh, you know, scale, um, you know, employees funding or whatever, you know, whatever details you can share. Yeah, sure. Um, so we got started a little bit uh, past two and a half years ago. That was primarily with the core product. Um, today we serve thousands of businesses across the U.S. We have um, close to 30 employees now. Um, we're growing every day. Uh, you know, we did a seed round uh, earlier, but we really believe in focusing on the product and making sure that we have a sustainable business um, in terms, you know, instead of just relying on, uh, you know, outside capital to sustain that. And that's been our philosophy, um, you know, from the very beginning. And uh, it's been a really fun ride since. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were part of uh, Techstars in New York. So what, what do you think you got from that experience? Uh, Techstars is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the accelerator you're in and I've chatted with a lot of different founders who've, you know, been part of many various accelerators and much of the experience really depends on the managing director there. And we were fortunate to have an incredible managing director, um, someone like Alex who was running at the time. And uh, I think what made the difference with someone like him, he was going above and beyond for the portfolio companies and the companies also in in our cohort were really fun and it was a really awesome experience to be around so many different companies and make friendships like the ones I did at that time where you know we're all just staying at the office late grinding until the wee hours of the night and uh, kind of going through the same ups and downs. Now the um, you know since you've you know launched the company and everything um, how did you, from the early days, figure out pricing? Because that's a that's a tricky thing for companies to figure out. Like you know, especially when you deal with you know very small business owners. And then I noticed you had a tier pricing that uh, there's like an exclusive by invitation only pricing model that I I don't think I've ever seen that before. So I was curious to learn more about that too. Yeah. So I think what what every company should think about when they think about pricing is. Um, what do you stand for? And for us, that was simplicity and value. And those were two things that, uh, you know, we wanted to stand for. And pricing, as it relates to simplicity and value, just had to fit squarely in there. So, you know, that's why we don't 
do any, you know, a ton of extra random fees. We don't do, you know, stuff that's not complicated. We don't do stuff that, sorry, is complicated, very straightforward. And um, with respect to the invitation only option, you know, I think there's some, so that is a uh, premium option that gets access to features before they're live, um, a lot more uh, design solutions and tools. And that's primarily because we want to make sure that as we're investing time with customers, they're able to do it too. And that's why we generally just invite customers who are in a different stage of their career to be a part of that. Um, and the other thing also is because that, uh, that pricing option is higher, most customers don't need it. And they're fine with a, with a smaller, more simpler price point. So that's kind of why we've kept it invitation only. Yeah. And I, I thought your pricing page was very, like you said, simple and it's all, here's the details. Whereas, you know, you go to a lot of other companies, it's like, you know, uh, standard pro enterprise beyond that yeah. cost. Yeah, so it's like you have, all, and then yeah. you have all these check boxes and all these features and it's just overly done and cumbersome. So I thought yours was just to the point, which if you're a small business owner, you just want very straightforward information to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Our mantra is everything you need and nothing you don't. Right. Exactly. If now, you don't need it, we're not, if you don't need it, we don't want to sell it to you because there's just no point. Exactly. Now you had mentioned, uh, you knew how to code, which, um, you know, that, that was, I guess, a, a, a benefit for you and your co-founder who both knew how to code, how to start building the product. Cause that's something that I often ask, um, you know, founders, when I saw your economics degree, I didn't know the history of you, you know, coming in originally as an engineer, but, um, do you think all, Founders should, you know, if they're in college, whether if they're studying, you know, uh, history or political science, they should take classes, learn how to code too. Yes. Yes. It changes the way you think about things. Um, and it makes you think about systems and um, architecture for things outside of products even. So I would highly recommend it. And uh, I think even though there are tools that probably automate some of the, uh, you know, coding process, just the abstraction and framework to thinking is probably the most valuable part of it. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely a huge benefit. And, um, you know, I just constantly hear that that's promoted that, you know, a lot of people believe that, you know, everyone should learn how to code. It just does, you know, have that kind of broader way of thinking and uh, problem solving. Yep. Now, as you reflect since, uh, you know, starting Gloss Genius, like, what do, what do you think has been kind of your, you know, biggest mistake that you've made as a founder that you'd want to warn other founders not to make? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> or which uh, ones? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so, yeah, there's always uh, things that you would have done differently or not. Um, hmm. You know, I think, I think one of them is probably a blessing and a curse. So I guess one of the things that I think about is um, time of hiring. And probably in the beginning, we could have hired people a little faster and that would have made it a little easier um, in the medium longer term. And there were probably, there were actually a few roles, yeah, we would have hired earlier for. Um, and now I think we have the rule of thumb now that we should hire people right when we have enough work for one more person and then try to factor in how much time it would take to get someone up to speed. Mm -hmm. So 
it's still not perfect estimating that. But now as soon as one person can't do this, we are just like, okay, you know what? There's not enough for two full people, but there will be soon. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our, our um, benchmark there. The other thing, the other mistake uh, is probably something I also missed the mark on with respect to onboarding. You know, I would assume that everyone would get up to speed in two weeks. And uh, in reality, it's a way longer time than that for successful ramp up of, um, you know, employees and new talent, no matter how incredible they are, mm-hmm. there's just so much knowledge that you have built up and someone coming in, you know, as an outsider, it, it does actually take time for them to build that um, intellectual capital within the organization. Yeah, and it takes time to learn the person's strengths and weaknesses too. Like you, you only spend so much time getting to know the person over, you know, in, in interviews, but once they settle in, that's when you know, like, wow, this person is shining here, but you know, there's going to be some development needed over here. Yep. Yep. No, I'm going to tie this into, um, you know, when you we're kind of coming out of the starting gates, um, you know, customer acquisition. You know, so you talked about, hey, you know, we raised the seed round of funding. We've really focused on building this company, you know, around its own merits of, you know, growing based on uh, on revenue and not just raising gobs and gobs of capital. So how have you gone about building a company with that type of philosophy, which uh, is, is smart and I think a lot of other founders admire and, and getting, you know, the, the customer acquisition of people actually, you know, purchasing your platform? Yeah, so I think we definitely have the philosophy here that, product is king and uh you know without product other functions that a company don't function as well and a lot of the things that we've thought about you know with with fewer resources and uh a leaner team and i guess a lean philosophy is just can we do this in a automated way or can we build this into the product in some you know some way shape or form or is there something we can be doing with respect to a um customer's experience that might help us in something we're trying to achieve, you know, on the marketing side or whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, my co-founder and I having a technical background, we both had the mindset that anything can be done with code and uh, product was, you know, a, a core strength of how we thought about achieving a lot of what needs to happen in a startup. So I, we really focused on product in the beginning with customer acquisition. And, and I think from there, it was just like a stepladder function of, great, can we have people talk about this product? Great. Can we, you know, kind of have more word of mouth? And word of mouth today is, is, has been and, and is still today one of our largest drivers of growth. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the most successful, successful channels of brand awareness, too, because um, particularly in our industry, you know, a professional's opinion matters so much more to another professional than anything you as a business could ever say to them. Yeah. No, and like small business owners are always seeking out others to talk about like, how how are you doing this? (laughs) And then that word of mouth thing is so powerful. Yeah. Now, when you were just, you know, you talked about some some of the hiring uh, that you've done. So how did you start to build out the initial team and evaluate which employees to bring in. Cause that can be tricky too, when you're building out the first, you know, two, five, 10 employees and what that can mean as far as the foundation of the company and, it, and its culture. Yeah. I think hiring is probably one of the hardest parts of running a startup because there are so many, 
there's so many people out there and there's a lot of incredible people out there, but maybe the incredible people out there are not necessarily a really good fit for what it is you're doing at a specific time. So not only do you have to find the incredible people, but you also have to find the incredible people at the right time for what it is your startup requires. And um, yeah, I think that's uh, something every company goes through. Initially, it was just friends of friends. Um, I think that made it a little bit easier for us to, you know, friend was easier to evaluate for us because it was just someone in our network. And, um, you know, having just like a, just like a small business owner taking a recommendation from another one, you know, I think we would value a recommendation on a topic that was front and center for us in a very similar way too, you know, with, with a lot more bias and, and, um, I guess likeness for someone that had been recommended. Now I think we're stepping back into a lot more of a, a process and, now we develop something, um, it's like a, we call it the Gloss Genius Hiring and Interviewing Manual. And uh, there's a great book I read, actually, called Who, mm-hmm. um, by Jeff Smart, that uh, he's the author of it. And I actually mirrored a lot of how we thought about our hiring process um, off of some of the pointers in that book. So I highly recommend uh, for people to read it. But right now, you know, the process we have is, we think about what are the critical competencies for uh, what would make an A plus player in this role? What are the cultural competencies for what would make someone fit really well in this role? And then we'll take a step back. We'll make scorecards of you know what it would take for someone to succeed here and kind of like a mission statement too for the role. And then our interviewing process is a few steps. You know, is a quick screening interview. Um, there's a deeper interview where we'll go through different points in time on someone's um, resume or you know their past experience, and we'll ask them about what they did. I don't. I am kind of from the view of I don't really care where someone came from. I just care what they did, and um, I we really try to dig deep into that, and then we'll do reference interviews. References are really important to me because. Um, I think if it's someone that, especially if it's a reference you can get from a friend of a friend that knew someone or had worked with someone that wasn't a provided reference, that's very powerful. So all of that we think about as part of our interview process. And, uh, and it's every, every single time we want to make it better. It's not a perfect science now, but I think under thinking about how to actually um, run a process here, that's a really great step towards hiring more efficiently. And then also there's a ton of resources out there on like, you know, interviewing better and hiring smarter, such as that book um, called Who, that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people get a lot of benefits from. Now, you mentioned uh, check and references, which uh, I agree if you can get that kind of that backdoor reference, that's extremely powerful. But the instances where you can't just you don't have that connection to kind of find your way to that very valuable reference. You're just working off the ones that were provided to you, which are usually layup references. So what, what question, what questions would you ask that layup reference to get to the heart of what you really need to know? Uh, well, we have a whole entire um, guide on how to do reference interviews. So what I'll ask them is a series of six questions and uh, basically would start asking this uh, reference about the context in which they worked with the person. And then we'll go through um, what were the person's biggest strengths? 
uh, what were their biggest areas for improvement back then. Um, you know, I'd ask the person, how would you rate his or her overall performance in a job? I'd ask them to give me a rating on a one to 10 scale. Um, you know, if they give me like a eight or a seven, I'll dive in and I'll dig a little deeper and, and then I'll proceed and ask, you know, what about this candidate's performance would cause you to give that rating? And then um, I'll use any notes that I got from the candidate about, uh, you know, their past experience at a role, whether it's something they love doing or maybe something they mentioned that they really didn't like doing or struggled with or whatnot. And then, you know, I'll cross-check that with uh, the reference interviewer and I'll ask, you know, about something that this person mentioned they struggled with. I'll ask if they can give any more information about it. Um, and then the most telling question, the most telling question is, um, if you ask someone that you're doing a reference interview with, if there was one reason why this person wouldn't work out, what would it be? Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not so much about, Oh, this person isn't qualified. You're just really getting down to, is this person a good fit? Mm -hmm. And, um, I think there's a lot of incredible people in this world and uh, the challenge is that some of them might not be a great fit for the company's needs at the time. And the reference interviews, I think really help you uh, understand that from a multiple, um, multiple different perspectives of, of people that have worked with someone before. And, you know, I always frame the reference interviews in terms of like, Hey, we've gotten to know, cause the point in time in which we're doing reference interviews, we, we really, we really like someone and we really, you know, we've started to develop a relationship with them and we care if they're going to be a good fit at our company or not. And I'll frame the reference interviews as, um, you know, Hey, we've gotten to know so-and-so and, uh, we really want to make sure that this is a good fit for this person. And, um, you know, we care about next steps in their career. And because of that, we, you know, would love to chat with you for a few moments just to double check. This is a great fit. That's a great process. It's impressive that you have it so well thought out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not without a bunch of trial and error. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is an important step, but uh, I think most people kind of just do it as a rubber stamp and don't really give it the attention it needs. And, uh, you know, they'll do strengths and weaknesses and again, rubber stamp approach, but uh, you know, it's really, I like your approach of phrasing it. Like we want to make sure that this is a good fit on both sides, that this is a good step for this person's career that we care. And then how you phrase the question at the end of, you know, you know, what reason would they not be a fit here? So it's a, uh, it's, it's a way of structuring the question that kind of gets you different information than the standard Q and a stuff that most people ask. Right. So outside of work, what, what, what do you like to do? Oh my gosh. Um, what do you mean outside of work? I don't know, right? So uh, I'm just kidding. Zero time you have. No. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just kidding. Um, I like cooking a lot. Uh, I really do like art. Um, you know, I enjoy reading. Uh, I do have a bad tendency to read things that will cross-pollinate with work. So, you know, for example, that book, The Who Interview, and when we, I was thinking about, you know, kind of making more of a process for hiring and interviewing, I just would read so much about it. So I'm not sure that really counts. But uh, 
yeah, family is really important. You know, on the weekends, it's a great time to catch up with family and um, FaceTime with my other sisters. And it's uh, a balancing act. I think we're in the same boat. I, um, you know, when I consume, uh, when I read like a book or if I'm, you know, reading magazines or listening to podcasts, it's all business type of stuff. Like I don't read like any fiction, fun stuff. It's all like (laughs) biographies and like, uh, you know, hard thing about hard things and like, yep. so, but it's what I love. It's what I enjoy. So, uh, so I, I, I can't help it, but anyways, All right, Danielle, thanks so much for taking the time to share all the experience in terms of your background, of course, all the awesome things you're doing with Gloss Genius and uh, wishing you continued success. Thanks for having me, Keith. Enjoy to chat with you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.